0: we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we've got some breaking news this week on the Co-Main Event Podcast. The new website is up. co has a whole new look. We invite all the kids out there to stop by and check it out. we got to send huge shouts out to our guy, Chris McElwee for slaving away on the website, helping us out with that, getting a whole new look up there at comainevent.com, one that we think uh, the, the kids will like better than the minimalist look we had going before, and uh, hopefully one that will, will suit our needs as well. So uh, yeah. we're excited about this. I assume that
1: this will be the first ever website redesign to be universally loved, yeah. just right out the gates. Yeah, also, no, not only shouts out to, to Chris McCoy for slaving away on it, slaving away on it, in the final hours, while waiting for the birth of his child,
0: yeah, we started to get some emails from him toward the end. There, that, that was like, "Hey, do you guys want to uh, launch this website at any point? Because I'm, my wife's about to have a baby, and yeah, you might not hear from me for months at a time. But it seems like they're doing great. So, uh, Mazel Tov up there to uh, to Chris and his wife and the and the new baby,
1: and the new website, the birth and, of a new website,
0: <laughs> and the new website. I'm sure both probably about equal. In his heart, I yeah. would assume. Mm-hmm,
1: yeah. Look back on the happiest, you know, not quite day, but time of your life is when my wife gave birth to a baby and I gave birth to a website for a, a podcast in Montana.
0: Popular mixed martial arts comedy podcast. Uh, from the good news, I guess, to the bad news, folks, as okay. the deadline passed over the weekend for the current, I guess now, uh, historic Co main Event Podcast, Patreon Pledge Drive. Unfortunately, we did not reach the threshold that would have compelled me to watch Hereditary. Uh, it's good news and bad news, I suppose, for for me, because now I can I can say that I will never watch Hereditary. It's a, uh I will just put it there in stone as one of the co-main event podcast solemn vows. But uh, you know, we would have liked to get up there to the hundred uh hundred new patron threshold that we wanted to reach, but just just didn't happen for us. So I suppose that's the bad news. I guess before we get to the good news, did, is there anything you wanted to say? Is there did you want to deliver an apology or uh, a statement of regret or um, you No, know,
1: I regret some things.
0: <laughs> I sure regret some do. things.
1: I'm sure you uh, do. Uh I mean, look, I don't have to tell people that this is a direct result of your shitty attitude. They can see that. They can see it. And they also can see that, you know what? Years from now, people are going to be talking about Hereditary and what a great horror movie it was and making references that you don't get. You're going to look like a goddamn idiot
0: mm-hmm. when you
1: don't get these references. Yeah. And you know what? I'm not going to have any sympathy for you. Yeah. It's your loss. It's your loss.
0: The thing that I've long said about you that I admire is how you take failure in stride. You just <laughs> just always the classy in defeat, just moving on to the next without a, a crossword for anyone. A real you know what? A real Anderson Silva type is what I can say about you, Ben Folks.
1: This would have worked if you hadn't been such a terrible person there. I said it.
0: Okay. Uh we there is good news though here, Ben. Yeah. And that is that uh we're still gonna watch a scary movie. We're still gonna give the people what they want, uh, via a special episode of the movie club podcast this week over on the Patreon. This one will be available to all patrons at all tiers. That's right. Where uh we're going to watch one of the classics of the horror genre. I'm just going to I will read the plot description and then I think everyone will know what we're talking about. When aspiring hip hop performers Butch, Postmaster P and Stray Bullet cross record producer Mac Daddy, their grudge against him leads to their own peril. After they break into Mac Daddy's home and swipe an ancient medallion from a grotesque statue, the evil Leprechaun is freed from his magical prison. Soon, the sinister little man is on the trail of Butch, Postmaster P, and Stray Bullet, along with Mac Daddy himself. That's right, folks. This week on The Movie Club, it's Leprechaun in the Hood. Okay. Now, see, the people watching on the live stream can see you took off your glasses Mm -hmm. and massaged the bridge of your nose to denote the seriousness of the situation. I don't know
1: if that's what I was denoting, to be quite honest with you. But, hey, you know what? Some people like good horror movies. Other people like whatever the leprechaun in the hood is. And, you know, that's see, that's where you get me on board. Honestly, is when you say starting like you wouldn't
0: have been on board anyway.
1: You know. Leprechaun in the Hood came out in 2000, the year 2000, and I've made it 20 goddamn years without watching it. So I I probably would have continued on indefinitely not watching it if not for this unfortunate turn that things have taken. But you know what? I'm on board now. Leprechaun in the Hood. Let's find out what that Leprechaun gets up to in the Hood. I'm sure there will be no uh, offensive stereotypes at all.
0: Uh, a breezy one hour and 31 minutes okay. available on most streaming sites for pretty cheap. I think you can get it for about two bucks over on Amazon Prime, Ice-T, Coolio. It's a star-studded cast, man. So and we're not so, uh, watching
1: the three-hour director's cut is what you're saying.
0: If it's out there, let's let's see if we can get it. And uh, that will be, we'll probably do that one on release that episode on Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday this week. Sure. And so uh, that'll be out there for all the, uh, all the new patrons to enjoy. So, don't say it wasn't a total loss. We, you know, we're all going to have some fun. We got music this week uh, from our guys, Foreign Cash. That's C A C H E, an L A based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreign cash again that's c-a-c-h-e as in cash really pleased to be able to share their music this week three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one dana white says anderson silva has one fight left on his ufc deal but after saturday's loss to uriah hall they will definitely not be offering it to him so where does that leave us and in round number two, Israel Adesanya moves up in weight to fight Jan Blahovic for the light heavyweight title. And the defining question of this super fight might be why? And in round number three, the COVID cup goes down this weekend as Glover Tashira is finally set to fight Tiago Santos. You know, maybe, barring any last-minute changes. All that, plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Drew DiMaggio. Okay. I think a uh, a relative of Joe DiMaggio, a, an ancestor.
1: Yeah. Joe DiMaggio's ne'er-do-well grandson.
0: I guess it wouldn't be an ancestor. It would be a, uh, what would you call it? So about,
1: Drew, I picture Drew Di- Di- DiMaggio rolling up in a Trans Am with a pack of cigarettes in his sleeve. <laughs> and uh, and you know what? I'm into it.
0: Well, let's see what he's got to say here. Uh, I know Dana and his nonsensical unpromoting is not a new thing, but there has there ever been a more frustrating example than his criticism of Uriah Hall after this fight? Rather than highlight Anderson Silva's good movement and building up the guy who, in all caps, knocked him out. Dana talks about Anderson Silva like he's an octogenarian and then launches an assault on Hall for being one of the most, quote, gun-shy fighters in the UFC. Hall is a great representative of mixed martial arts and has been part of numerous exciting fights. And he has produced several ex- uh, exciting jaw-dropping finishes. And Dana goes in on him seemingly for no good reason. Ah, uh, Dana White and I know we're going to talk about this as it pertains to Anderson Silva coming up in round number one, but Dana White showed up to this press conference in a foul mood on, on Saturday night. And I don't know exactly why, except that perhaps the main event fight did not live up to his own expectations. Although uh, you know, I watched it myself and now I can say, I mean, you put two guys like Anderson Silva and Uriah Hall together in a fight And I think we got pretty much what we should have expected for you know three rounds and change before Uriah Hall uh, dropped him for the second time and finished him with with strikes on the ground. I'm not exactly sure what the expectations were and not exactly sure what would uh, prompt Dana White to show up at this press conference and kind of bury Uriah Hall, who was the guy who just won his main event fight.
1: Yeah, I wrote about it a little bit in my post-fight column how if you just watched UFC broadcasts. Like just the event broadcast and nothing else. Like you didn't watch pre or post fight press conferences, didn't pay attention to any like of the media coverage or anything. All you did, your only exposure to what goes on in the UFC is watching the events themselves. And which, by the way, if you do do that, I don't blame you a bit. That might. I mean, be, that's what
0: most people do, right?
1: Yeah. Well, that's how most people consume most sports, I think. I mean, the only time I ever find myself watching a clip of a post-game press conference in any other sport is if something really weird or stupid happens and then right, it gets which posted all
0: over. Every week in mixed martial arts.
1: Right. But if you only watch that, it would come as a real surprise to you to learn that this was not, in fact, a – heartbreaking yet beautiful and tender moment inside the UFC octagon, because that's what it appeared to be. If you just watched it, that's how the, the commentators framed it, that Uriah Hall had knocked out Anderson Silva and they shared this emotional moment with Uriah Hall crying in the cage. It was the shit from the WWE where Shawn Michaels looks at Ric Flair and tells him, I'm sorry, I love you. And then kicks him in the face. It was that except real life. And the commentators really spent some time with that moment and driving home the emotional impact of that moment. And then you show up to the post-fight press conference and Dana White makes a – that goes out of his way to make a point that this fight sucked and never should have been made. And both guys suck, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And And he ends up just taking these shots at Uriah Hall – solely it seems to prove that Anderson Silva should not be fighting anymore. And it's like, you, you made the fight. You got, you know, he said like, Oh, I, I, or Dana White's version of taking responsibility for something is saying, I knew that this was, this fight was a bad idea, but he talks me into it. And the outcome of the fight proves that I was right. That's, yeah. that's what he said afterwards. And then in order to back up that point was like, Hey, he lost to Uriah Hall. Who sucks, basically, is what Dana White said. The most gun-shy fighter in the UFC through 11 strikes or whatever and, and whatever round. And you're like, well, I mean, I just came away from watching the broadcast where they were telling me what a great moment this was. And it was like a really emotional moment to see these guys there like kneeling in front of each other, like crying and embracing. And uh Uriah Hall telling him he's sorry and that he looks up to him so much. And to go right from that to being like, yeah, these guys suck. This was a bad idea and it never, we never should have offered this up to you. And you know what? I blame these other guys for talking me into offering it up to you. And it would be disgusting in Dana White's words to, for anybody else to offer Anderson Silva, even one single more fight. And that to me is just so baffling because you're supposed to be the promoter here. And is it, is it so worth it to you to just bury the guy and try to decrease his value to another promoter or try to, I don't know if you think you're you're helping to talk him into retirement because it's better for him. Because in a way, I believe Dana White when he was like, hey, I care about this guy. I don't want to see him continue to take beatings. He doesn't need to. You shouldn't be out there fighting at his age. And this, this result shows. I'm tempted to believe that in a, in a way, Dana Dana White's heart is in the right place there. That he really does care about Anderson Silva. doesn't want to see him keep getting beat up. But it's also a weird thing for the promoter to be like, you know what? Well, I offered him whatever this was like his... 46th pro fight and his 45th pro fight, both of which he lost to top 10 middleweights. I kept throwing him in there against top 10 middleweights at his age. But if anybody were to offer him a 48th, that would be inexcusable. Like we've decided we're done making money off Anderson Silva. And therefore it would be awful for anybody else. It would be just unconscionable for anybody else to make money off of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, What are the odds that he got mad that people were crying and hugging in the cage after it was over? You think that that could be it? I mean, I think it might be part of it. Like, it's a, I, I think it's a that's nice a nice
1: moment, though, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, and uh, you, you know, I know we'll talk about Anderson Silva later, but like Uriah Hall, for all of his potential drawbacks as a fighter, like, seems like a very, very decent human. Like, you might even make the argument too decent f- for this sport, and like to see him commiserating with Anderson Silva after the fight and like see seeing his initial reaction to the stoppage as well where he just kind of like goes back to his corner kneels down and like appears to essentially like start meditating almost like like he's not going to go crazy he's not going to celebrate like he won the super bowl like he just seems like a very centered focused intelligent guy with human feelings and it's weird to take you know what otherwise could be kind of a singular figure in the sport and just bury him instead of highlighting what could be his his promotable properties
1: yeah and and why is the question because I don't,
0: I don't know. And I like, I would agree that like Uriah Hall can be kind of a frustrating athlete to watch fight. Like he reminds me just in, in terms of sheer physicality, a little bit of Holly Holm in that, like you see him and you think this dude should murder everyone. And then he goes out there and has like a, a patient, uh, you know, somewhat slow paced game plan where it seems like it takes him a couple rounds to get, out of the get the get the Ferrari into fifth gear, but then, you know, by the time the third round rolls around, he drops Anderson Silva at the end of it, and then he comes out and finishes him a minute into the fourth round. So it's not like you can't say the guy didn't have a killer instinct. He did exactly what he was supposed to do and gets the victory. I just I don't understand why it would be important to to bury him, especially since you're, you know, we'll talk about this also later in the show, but like you are clearly scrounging around for 185 pound contenders. Like apparently you don't feel like you have any. Uh, and like you've got Uriah Hall now on a three fight win streak. I believe he has won uh, four of his last five and his only loss in that stretch is to Paulo Costa, the guy who was previously the number one contender. And then you like, you look at his previous losses before that, all the way back in 2016, 2015, he lost a Gagard Mousasi who he had beaten earlier, uh, Derek Brunson and Robert Whittaker. Like that's, that is a uh, a respectable group of losses for Uriah Hall, who may well be coming into his own as a as a martial artist here. It just doesn't make any sense to me for the company and the guy in charge to to treat him like this in the wake yeah. of a win.
1: Yeah, no, it's it serves no purpose, especially if you're the guy who's supposed to be promoting people.
0: Next question this week uh, comes to us from Buddy Lamp, who writes: So Greg Hardy dot 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 Crusher of Cans question mark. Greg Hardy rolled in, got the second round TKO victory over the crochet boss Maurice Green in a uh heavyweight fight on the main card of this thing. Not before Greg Hardy had a little bit of trouble making the 265-pound limit, needed two tries to come back and get in under the under the limit, almost becoming the first guy, I believe, ever to miss the heavyweight 265 pound limit. But uh, I don't know, man, like everybody, as we have discussed on this show numerous times, we all know why Greg Hardy is shitty, right? Greg Hardy's shittiness is well documented. And I don't think he's the kind of guy that very many people can get behind in terms of, uh, like supporting him as an athlete or a fighter, but you kind of got to shrug your shoulders and say that like, if you would certainly not to discount any of the personal issues because he is explicitly shitty, but like just in terms of performance, this was his best, this was his best showing in the octagon so far I thought against a guy in Maurice green who hasn't been like a top flight contender, but has also gotten some wins on his own in the UFC. So like, I don't know, just in terms of pure fighting, this is an okay performance from Greg Hardy. I don't know that this would be the one where I would come out afterwards and say, can crusher.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because Maurice Green has has been a guy who, who can do some stuff. You know, not yeah, a top reasonable. heavyweight or anything. But yeah, it it is a, a improvement from some of the guys we've seen Greg Hardy fight so far. Honestly, I think Greg Hardy has been one of the bigger winners of Pandemic UFC just because it's the only time he doesn't get booed. You know, like when he shows up to fight in these empty arenas, nobody boos him, which everybody boo. He gets booed every single other time. So it, this is kind of an improvement. It was interesting, though, afterwards where... You know, Malkikawa's agent tweeted that this fight almost didn't happen. Greg Hardy alluded to some kind of extortion plot against him. Uh, and then it seems is now kind of going on the offensive about this. About what's been made of his his image and uh, his name being as he sees it unfairly sullied at one point during the post fight press conference when he was talking about this, he said that he he's an innocent man who has never been called guilty, never been proven guilty, none of that, uh, but was just executed by instagram with, and that's just not true right like, that's just he actually was literally
0: found guilty.
1: He was found guilty in a bench trial. Uh, in a domestic violence bench trial in 2014, appealed it, wanted a jury trial um, after, I guess, he felt like, okay, it seems like maybe initially thought, okay, if I just have like one judge here deciding it, maybe I have a better chance. And that judge heard all the evidence and said, yeah, this guy's guilty of this thing. And then he appealed it, wanted a jury trial. The case was dropped after the, the victim stopped cooperating reportedly after reaching some kind of private settlement with Hardy. So, you, you 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 paid your way out of that one to make it go away. Also, uh, the thing that finally ended his stay in the NFL for good was getting arrested on felony possession of cocaine, taking a plea deal to to knock it down to a misdemeanor. But then that's when the all the NFL teams decided to have enough of Greg Hardy and he moved on to trying to be an MMA fighter. So to go out now and be like, I never did anything wrong and I am a victim of like a smear campaign of people just trying to falsely accuse me and profit off of it. I don't know, man, that doesn't make you any more likable to the people who decided that they already didn't like you for this. Plus, remember when the UFC first signed him, for like Dana White's contender series, they put together a video package that just alluded to him trying to put legal troubles in the past. And they were kind of trying to make it out to be a redemption story. But as we pointed out at the time, it's hard to be a redemption story. If you never say I did something wrong and I was sorry. And now he's saying, I never did anything to be sorry for in the first place. And so he's just kind of like staking out that territory. And that's, that seems going to be it going forward. Uh, but I don't, I mean, it's hard to say when you see a guy, his age, Winning some heavyweight fights clearly he's a big powerful athletic dude who has learned fast picked up a lot of stuff fast improved very quickly uh the the fight IQ has gotten better the every, everything that he does has gotten better and yet it's so hard to say how far this guy can go in the heavyweight division because there's a huge gulf between like you know uh, a number 18 heavyweight in the world and the the top 5 like the yeah. th- there's arguably no weight class where there's a bigger jump between those.
0: Yeah. And you can see the athleticism, like when he scrambles on the ground in this fight with uh, Maurice Green, you could see the athleticism, the quickness that he's able to kind of change positions and get himself out of, out of danger. Uh, And you can also see the power. He knocks Maurice Green down with like kind of a scoop jab the first time around, and then finished him with, with strikes and hammer fists on the ground. Of course, Maurice Green was somewhat upset with the stoppage, but uh, you know, he did he did kind of go down right on his face there in a way that you can't really yeah, go he can't down be too if, you, upset. if you don't want the the referee to stop it. Uh, I agree with you. It, it's hard to say like what the the ceiling is here for Greg Hardy. I think that there are some you know if you were in Greg Hardy's corner, I think that there would be some cause for not necessarily concern, but some reasons to temper your excitement. Like almost missing weight at the heavyweight limit, I think is is one of the. Uh, things that would give you give you some pause he doesn't certainly doesn't look like a world beater uh he's out there breathing pretty heavy all the way around in this fight despite this, this guy me, it, Chad. come on it, well, i guess that is true yeah uh it wasn't particularly a high-paced fight it just uh, i mean he's it seems like he is uh he is improving but when you i still watch him fight and i still every time it happens i just think why are we spending time on this guy like uh Clearly, the UFC sees something promotable in him, and obviously, his previous notoriety is the entirety of that. I don't think he'd be out there if he didn't have that past, and yet the past is almost completely negative, and so it's really weird to uh, to spend a lot of promotional time on that guy when he doesn't seem like he would be, or it doesn't seem like he might be uh, like a top of the food chain type heavyweight. And just kind of keep him around in this weird middle ground where he's going to fight guys like Maurice Green. It doesn't doesn't make a ton of sense. It's almost like yet another case where the UFC has a guy under contract so nobody else can.
1: Hmm. Okay. So to keep, you're saying this is all a plot to keep Bellator from making Jake Hager versus Greg Hardy?
0: Well, I don't know about that. Like, and like the UFC in the past has seemed not just like tolerant of Greg Hardy, but like explicitly giddy to be in business with the guy. So it, it, I I don't he, I don't know that he has yet justified that, but it is apparent at this point that he will continue to be around. So there you are. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes: Are we better off just seeing fighters as fighters and not knowing anything else about them? I was pretty impressed by Thug Nasty's performance against Touchy Feely and was excited to see what he can do at featherweight. But then I saw enough of his anti-mask comments that it made me wish I'd seen nothing about him beyond the fight so that I could still enjoy him. I've had this happen with other fighters I follow on Twitter before. I see you, Jorge Masvidal. I'm wondering what you thought of Bryce Mitchell's performance, but also uh, wondering how you often how often you wish you knew nothing about fighters other than the fights Uh, They are in. Yeah, Uh, this is here's another question, Ben, where if you just randomly tuned into the show and heard us talking about a fight between a guy named Thug Nasty and a guy named Touchy Feely it might sound a little weird to people outside the bubble.
1: And yet it is a good indication of what you could expect if you come into this world. This is not by any means a a one off aberration that will never happen again. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: this is, this, this deal about finding out more than you wanted to know about fighters is the, the Matt Hughes principle, yeah. right? When Matt Hughes was welterweight champion and he was out there taking people down and destroying them and everybody loved him. And then all of a sudden he shows up on the ultimate fighter and it starts to seem like, oh, wait a second, maybe this guy's an insufferable prick. Yeah. And then, uh, he, he does himself some damage with his autobiography The kind of the longer he sticks around, the more we were kind of like, oh, maybe we don't like this guy after all. And now, uh. You know, there has been a proud procession of fighters ever since coming along, seeming like they might be fun-loving, cool guys until you find out what they're actually into. Yeah. And so you
1: kind of have to make some sort of split in your mind between like the person and the fighter because right? you, when you're talking about it. I'm the same way we kind of do it with Greg Hardy, I guess. But the, with Bryce Mitchell, especially, you look at the guy and he just keeps winning fights, even though he seems at times you think, well, maybe he's one dimensional, maybe this Grappling heavy style won't work as he climbs up the the featherweight ranks. Uh, Much better fighters up there who seem like they'd be capable of shutting this down. And yet he just keeps winning. Just keeps winning one right after the other and surprising and impressing me every time he does it. And then, yeah, he shows up afterwards. Uh, Everybody had a good time supporting him for getting the camo shorts. The UFC made a whole ass promo about the camo shorts. Uh, One thing that is kind of interesting I'm watching the, the the Bryce Mitchell fight, and Michael Bisping at one point kind of casually mentions, you know, I wore camo shorts. People didn't make a big deal about it when I did it. It was, you know, and it kind of reminds you. It seems like he kind of accidentally did it because he kind of undercut this whole thing of isn't this so special? It took fucking years for Reebok to finally make these camo shorts, and Michael Bisping reminds you, oh yeah, back when you could pick your own fight gear, it was re- it would have been really easy. To come in here with some camo shorts and in fact I did it and it was so unremarkable that you don't even remember that I did it. I have to point out to you that I did it. And then Brendan Fitzgerald also mentions at one point they made him these Reebok, these special customized Reebok shorts only the second time. And during the duration of the UFC Reebok deal, which is now almost over, that somebody got personalized gear and the other guy was Conor McGregor. And it makes you harken back to the start of this when we were told they're going to work with fighters, they're going to come up with customized gear, it's going to be awesome, everybody's going to get to have their say and create their own kind of signature look. And then now we are at the end, and Brendan Fitzgerald seemed like he was just trying to give you trivia, but ended up highlighting just how ridiculous it is that they they were able to do it for Conor McGregor, and then it took years of lobbying for them to do something as simple as camo shorts for Bryce Mitchell, and we made a huge goddamn deal out of it. But then, yeah, you you know, he shows that he looks great in this fight against uh, Andre Feely, uh, keeps the undefeated streak going. I mean, I'm not going to be the guy who sits here and, and rallies for a Bryce Mitchell versus Ryan Hall fight, except that, yes, I absolutely am going to be that guy. Wow. But, but then he goes to a post-fight press conference and he has a whole diatribe about masks. About how you shouldn't make people wear masks during the pandemic; it should be optional. Like if you want to wear a mask, good for you. Just totally missing the point about why why we're wearing the masks and why it work. Like how it doesn't work if only some people are wearing the mask. And how makes an unfortunate analogy to hey people die on the interstate all the time in car accidents, and uh, you know we haven't closed the interstates. And it's like yeah, but we have made many many laws about how you have to operate your car on the road, like, so in order to be, so it's safe for everybody. We don't just say like, Hey, just figure it out yourselves, do whatever you want out there. Like it's a, it's the analogy that undercuts the point. Even And at one point he's even like, he, he said something along the lines of they claim it's killed 270 people in Arkansas. And by the way, when you're saying, first of all, that you claim you're already kind of in conspiracy theory territory being like, I don't believe all these deaths are from COVID. And then I went and looked it up to see if he's right about it. Uh, Arkansas says they have like almost 2000 deaths from uh, COVID-19 right now. And like 33 just added. So maybe like, maybe Bryce Mitchell isn't who you want to go to for up to date, like science during the pandemic information. And yet he wants to go out of his way to like, make it an issue.
0: Yeah. I will clarify at least for myself though, like it kind of made himself seem like a dumbass here with the mask diatribe, and unfortunately, people not being willing to wear the masks is going to cause a, a lot more COVID nineteen deaths. It's going to make us so we are mired in this pandemic perhaps forever. Uh, but like it's for whatever reason, it's still easier for me to exclude Bryce Mitchell, the the dumbass person, from Bryce Mitchell, the impressive fighter, than it is for me to do that with someone like greg hardy who has caused physical fair. damage to another human being to a woman uh that's so fair. i will, i uh, you know i said earlier greg hardy seems like he is explicitly shitty given everything that we've seen from him i'm not going to say the same thing about bryce mitchell yet but he definitely joins the uh the list of people along with jorge masvidal who tracy brought up and along with jared Cannonier, who like uh yeah we are probably better off if we don't find out the political beliefs of of These guys who get paid to fight each other, stripped to the waist, locked inside a steel cage for our enjoyment.
1: Also, I mean, you see like Aljamain Sterling going off of the mask thing and it's like, why are the toughest guys in the world, the biggest babies about a minor inconvenience, like wearing the mask? And like, especially you get concerned about, oh, like what if like uh, you got to let everybody have their businesses open and so that the economy doesn't crash. It's like, you know, you want to have the businesses open? Wear a goddamn mask in the grocery store, man. Then people might feel safe like going in there and we can keep all this stuff open and we can have like some semblance of normalcy. And it's not like it's that big a deal. It's not like it's that hard to wear a mask. These guys are out here punching each other in the face and slamming each other on the mat all the time. They can't put on a little fabric just, just right there, just cover up the nose and the mouth. It's not that hard, Chad. It's really not that hard.
0: I agree with you. Uh, Tim Volk writes us to say, is Gegard Mousasi Israel, Ades- Israel Adesanya's hardest potential opponent right now? Of course, uh, Musasi just reclaimed the Bellator middleweight title last Thursday with the win over welterweight champ Douglas Lima. If you want to hear us break down that fight in a little bit more depth, go ahead and sign up for the Patreon because we talked about it fairly uh, thoroughly on Friday during the Power Hour. So you could listen to that if you're a member of the Patreon. But like, this is an interesting point and one that I thought was was floated on social media, kind of in and around this fight. Uh, Gegard Musasi might actually be an interesting matchup for Israel Adesanya, although. I'm not going to fully go out and say that I would pick him or I thought he was going to win. But like he does have a fairly compelling skill set that would at least be fun to wind them both up and send them out there and see who won.
1: It would, especially – I mean, we'll get more into what Israel Adesanya has coming up later on in the show. But when you look at what's going on at middleweight now in the UFC, you do kind of wish that you had a guy like Musasi. Uh, Still laying around because he I I was looking at his record uh, earlier. Somebody asked in my mailbag about like how his resume uh, stacks up against active middleweights. And, you know, since he's over there in Bellator doing his thing, he's not going to get the same respect for what he's been up to as he would, if he were in the UFC. So doing, but he's one of those rare guys that exited the UFC on a, a sizable winning streak. You know, like he, he lost that fight to Uriah Hall in 2015 where he's winning. And then Uriah Hall pulls out like, you know, some video game shit and f- puts him away out of nowhere. And then he goes, he rebounds, he beats Talos Latis, Tiago Santos, Vitor Belfort, then gets revenge on Uriah Hall with a first round TKO, uh, and then TKOs Chris Weidman. So that's five in a row he wins to exit the UFC. And again, some some good dudes at the time. And then goes over to the Bellator, and in his time in Bellator, has lost just that one fight, close decision against Rafael Lovato Jr., uh, where he lost the title, and then comes back, beats Leo Machida. Beats Douglas Lima and this most recent one to reclaim the title. And if you just look at his body of work over the last few years, you got to admit that he is still a good middleweight, still out there doing it. And, yeah, style-wise, it would be interesting to see him against Israel Adesanya. And yet, I'd probably pick Israel Adesanya. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Here's our last question this week. Uh, comes to us from Chidi Onaganye. So good to see characters okay. from television's the good The Good Place checking in here on the uh on the co-main podcast he writes it's a long one i assume you guys heard about the mma junkie article where mike perry's ex-wife shares a frankly harrowing account of domestic violence at his hands can one ethically watch cards with him on it going forward with guys like abel trujillo greg hardy and rumble johnson having all fought during and after their incidents it's obviously it's obvious the ufc brass does not consider committing such crimes Uh, would render them unfit to continue a career as a caged prize fighter, but I feel Mike Perry is altogether different. He has shown from the very start of his UFC tenure, a checkered history of making bad decisions and poor impulse control. To be frank, this completely unfiltered personality is also a large part of his draw, but it doesn't seem like he's learning or changing. The incident with his wife occurred in February. It destroyed their marriage, and five months later, he's drunk as a skunk in public and throwing hands with little to no provocation. Mike Perry fights in a style where he's uh, there to get hit, and CTE is not going to diminish any of his existing problems. There are plenty of cautionary tales you can draw from other sports, so how can I enjoy the UFC with him in it? Um, this I guess we talked about some of this stuff just a minute ago with Greg Hardy, so you uh, know I don't know that we need to revisit the entire conversation, but suffice it to say that Mike Perry, who was previously booked for a fight against Robbie Lawler coming up at UFC 255, Lawler withdrew, I think with an injury and now he's going to allegedly or reportedly fight Tim means at that dirty bird. So, uh, the UFC had a chance to pull Mike Perry out of that, uh, probably without having to explain too much to us as to why they did it, but they're going to keep him in this December fight card. Uh, he claims to have gotten some help for his, his substance abuse trouble, though, uh, it's hard to believe that he could get in and out of any kind of meaningful treatment program this quickly. And of course with the, uh, the story about Daniel Nickerson that was in MMA Junkie a couple weeks ago, also surf- surfacing during this time, it does kind of make you think like, man, do we really need to be rolling Mike Perry out there to have these fights? Do we need to have him as part of this show right now uh, or at all, frankly, until he could like get some manner of, of substantial documented Help that might show up in, in his actual life instead of this, what feels like a smokescreen. And as quickly as possible, we're just going to shuffle this guy back into a fight and the UFC is going to pretend like it never found anything out about the alleged domestic violence incident.
1: Yeah. And say that's the thing, too, is don't, don't you wonder how Dana White's going to continue to play this? Because the last time he was asked about it, he kind of played dumb, just claimed that he hadn't seen any of this new reporting, which I'm not sure I believe. Say, oh, last thing I heard was she tried to get a restraining order from the judge and the judge wouldn't give her one trying to suggest like she's making it all up and acting like he hasn't seen it. Doesn't that get less and less plausible as time goes on? And that the next time you show up and you're talking about a fight card with Mike Perry on it, people are going to press you and be like, by this time, you have had ample opportunity to find out what people have been asking you about. And either you just decided you didn't want to or you're lying about it or you have to admit that you did see it and confront it in some way. Uh, And you're right that it would seem like just not worth the headache to do it, Even even if you take away any sort of ethical concerns as a guy running a business it just seems like it would be so much of a pain in the ass that why do it if you don't have to like, why do it right now? Why not tell Mike Perry, like, Hey, you know what? You got some, some heat on you right now, take six months off and see if you can improve your life a little bit, or at least show, try to show people that you're, you're thinking about improving your life. And then maybe when the heat dies down, you can come back. Like that would just seem like the easier thing to do. But it again, kind of like we saw with Dana White's response to Greg Hardy stuff, it was like the more people, offer up any sort of criticism on it, the more he doubles down and it's like, well, it must be the right thing. Cause it's what I decided to do. And therefore like I, I never second guess myself.
0: Yeah. And well, and now there's going to be more opportunities for people to ask him about it. Like you could ask him about it tomorrow. If there's going to be media, are they doing the contender series right now? They are, aren't they? Uh, if they do Tuesday night uh, and they're media at that, they could ask him about this opponent switch with Tim means now. in. and of course then you'll get UFC 255 uh, fight week, uh, media stuff where you could ask him again so uh i got a feeling he hasn't been asked for the last time so we'll see how he reacts the next time someone brings it up in any case that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to do it you go to the website co and click the link that's still there in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us right now though we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well, ben, we talked about the Uriah Hall side of the equation earlier in the show. Let's turn our attention here now to Anderson Silva, who lost via TKO to Hall about a minute and 30 seconds into the fourth round in their main event middleweight fight on Saturday night at this UFC on ESPN Plus event. This is, we are led to believe, perhaps, Anderson Silva's last fight in the UFC, perhaps his last fight anywhere We'll have to see how things play out. Let's talk for just a couple minutes here about Anderson Silva's actual performance. And then we could move on to the aftermath of this fight and, and how the UFC and Dana White may end up handling this Anderson Silva situation. I don't know, man. I thought for you know 20 minutes or so, well, I guess just under 20 minutes, uh, Anderson Silva looked like yeah, like you might expect him to look at, at 45, not terrible, not great. Uh, had some nice moments, may have won the first couple of rounds of this fight, and yet just kind of looks like, you know, he's lost enough steam that he can't really do the Anderson Silva stuff anymore. Yeah, he can't fight with his hands at his waist. He can't charge forward and and you know throw uh, shots at your face with little or no regard to how you're going to fire back. He can't duck or slip those punches with the ease that he used to. Uh, he can still catch you coming in with a leg kick, but he's not going to knock you down with it. It's kind of the way it seems. And so uh, he doesn't seem like he is completely cooked, but at the same time, also not like the guy who who used to be uh, the best pound-for-pound fighter on the planet and kind of, a, you know, as will happen to you if you fight as long as he did into his mid-40s, doesn't take as much, uh, you know, when he gets touched on the temple or the chin for him to go down these days as it, as it once did. I don't know that... I feel like the UFC is doing reverse psychology on me, man. Like if I had seen this Anderson Silva fight and then the UFC was like, oh, we're all about having him come back and fight again. We can't wait to throw him out there with another young up and coming middleweight. I probably would have been like, really? Cause it doesn't seem like he's the same Anderson Silva as before, but now because the UFC seems to be like indicating that they might just Try to legally end the guy's career because they still have him under contract and he still has allegedly one fight left. Now I'm kind of being like, well, man, if Anderson Silva wants to fight, it's his right. He should be able to fight. I feel like I've been I've personally been the victim of some reverse psychology here. Yeah, I mean,
1: I know what you mean, because, well, for one thing, if you're trying to find fights for Anderson Silva, does he absolutely need to fight a top 10 middleweight? Every single, because it's not. You look at his his record lately. uh, We talked about this a little bit when we discussed, you know, the the complicated legacy he has. A little bit on the Power Hour on Friday, but we love to point at his record over the last you know seven years, basically. But he fought Chris Weidman twice. Nick Diaz, who he beat, but then it was overturned uh, for the the steroid test. Lost a close one to Michael Bisping, stepped in on short notice, lost to Daniel Cormier, who then goes on to become a two division champion, won a decision over Derek Brunson, lost to Israel Adesanya, the current middleweight champ who's on his way to becoming one of the, the greats, uh, lost to Jared Cannonier, who was a top middleweight contender at the time, lost to number 10th, 10 ranked middleweight uh, Uriah Hall. And you're right, didn't look bad. For a lot of that fight, the the chin is the most concerning part, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, the, his fighting style was never going to age that well just because it relies on speed and quickness and just avoiding strikes by such a slim margin and being able to fire back. And the, the, the timing and the reflexes, if they start to degrade just a little bit, that whole style starts to fall apart. And then when you can't take a punch like you used to, and nobody really can after that long fighting just at 45 and after... 40-something pro fights, it's it's only natural that your chin would start to fade a little bit. But that's the thing that doesn't tend to get better. You know, once that starts to go downhill, it usually just keeps going. And yet still, like, don't you think there were middleweights on the roster right now in the UFC who Anderson Silva could beat?
0: Yeah, pr- probably. Uh, yeah. It would be nice. If he was going to soldier on, I agree. It would be nice to see him, you know, graduate to some kind of, like, legend fight. Yeah. Seniors, Masters division, not necessarily having to fight these young up and comers, Uh, and you know, watching Anderson Silva fight was always a tense affair because he's always been something of a slow starter. He's always been a kind of guy that was going to let you come to him and show you, show him what you were bringing to the table, and then he would counter it and he would destroy you. And and so now that he doesn't necessarily have the skills to do the second part the first part uh is is a lot of what you get although that you know he had some nice moments in this uriah hall fight as well but it's just like the the dynamic finishing finishing ability is not there anymore and that's a shame but uh you know if 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 he wanted to if he wanted to do grappling or or uh you know fight some some kids his own age i guess uh i'm i'm not sure that i would be vehemently against it Like you, like you, we've felt with some legends in the past, but again, maybe that's just because I've been affected now by this Dana White press conference where he comes out and it seems like he's mad at himself for even agreeing to book Anderson Silva, this fight in the first place. Uh, though, like you said, they had no qualms booking him against a bunch of top 10 middleweights leading up to this fight. Uh, and like Dana White kind of explicitly says, look, I'm not trying to stop the guy from doing anything but he's got one fight left on his UFC contract and like, we're not going to offer him another fight. Okay. Yeah. That that opens the door to, to like what, what the situation is now. Like,
1: yeah. How do you not immediately uh, grant him his release? Once you say that, once you say he has one fight left on his deal and we're never going to give it to him, never, ever. Are we going to honor that contract? Then you have to release him. Like he shouldn't have to ask you to release him at that point. It, It, it should be a no brainer. If you say, there are under no circumstances will we offer him the last fight on his deal. Then you're, you're basically holding him prisoner if you don't release him and it, it, it should be pretty simple. And yet Dana White, when asked directly, will you release him said, Oh, I don't know. Like I'm not going to, I'm not trying to hurt Anderson Silva or St- He's a grown man. He can do what he wants to do, but I can't say that I'll release him. And you're like, why, why, if you don't want to give him any more fights, if you were adamant, that he can never fight in the UFC again, although for some reason BJ Penn can, but fine, if you're adamant that Anderson Silva can never fight in the UFC again, then there's no reason for you to have him under contract. And it's it, you get into a really tricky legal thing by saying, I'm essentially going to try to use this contract to force him to stop. And I'm not going to offer him anything in return. Like, it's not like a Chuck Liddell thing where I'm going to give you a do-nothing job in exchange for you saying that you're retired. It's, I'm going to give you nothing and expect you to end your career because I said, I think it's time and you just, the promoter shouldn't have that power. And we could argue about like, there's a reasonable discussion to be had in the sport about who, if anyone should have that power, you know, in a, in a better world, maybe athletic commissions, that's one of their roles. Like that. you You actually are using your medicals to determine who should stop. And you're looking at people's records and you're looking at, the way their careers have gone and the age and, and looking at, you know, actual like actual data that you can point to and say, it's time you stop and we will not license you to fight anymore. Like That that should be one of the things that a competent athletic commission could do. They don't want to do it because they don't want to be the person that tells a promoter, hey, you have this guy on the fight card. We're not going to let you have him fight anywhere ever again. Just because like, no matter how much money you think you can make off of him, we're not going to allow that because then the promoter is going to get mad at you and they'll go to a different athletic commission and you rely on that revenue coming in. And so like nobody wants to nobody wants to be that bad guy. But that should be maybe the person who can do it, not the promoter who has a vested interest in limiting competition. If you're saying like, basically I will not release him and put him back into the free agency market where one of my competitors could use him that right there shows why you shouldn't be allowed to have that sort of power. And especially like you think about stuff that Anderson Silva could do, you know, he's always wanted to box Roy Jones, Jr. Yeah, Roy Jones, Jr. Is back doing stuff talking about how he's going to box Mike Tyson. It's not unthinkable given the, like our understanding of the combat sports landscape to think that maybe, you know, nine months from now, Anderson Silva and Roy Jones, Jr. Are trying to get you hyped about those two boxing yep. and, and, Like, could the UFC, like, should the UFC be in a position to be like, nope, you got this contract and we don't want to see you get punched in the head by anybody ever again. And so we're not going to do like, no, absolutely. UFC should not have that power.
0: Yeah. Uh, Anderson Silva released a statement, uh, made it sound like this was probably his last fight, but didn't explicitly say that. So you know how those things go. It does, I think, bring up the question of what happens next. Like, would the UFC indeed want to stop Anderson Silva from going elsewhere to fight? Like, would they endure the public relations headache that it would be for them to say that a relatively beloved figure like Anderson Silva didn't have the option to go anywhere else and make any money? Uh, And would Anderson Silva indeed have any time to waste if it came down to any manner of legal battle at 45 years old? It's not like he could get in a protracted legal argument with the UFC. So it it will be interesting, I think to see how all this stuff plays out. If indeed Anderson Silva does want to fight again, let's, uh, we'll go ahead and do, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two, Ben. I don't know if you saw this on the internet that, uh, John Jones released a video of him thwarting a robbery at his home. It looked mm-hmm. like somebody came down into the expansive parking lot there that belongs to John Jones. And, uh, tried to steal some stuff from his cars and the next thing you know the garage door is sliding up and john jones is chasing you through the albuquerque night with a shotgun i believe john jones he later deleted the video as is his want to do yeah but uh, i believe his comment was something like i ended up tapping on this guy's driver's side window with the barrel of my shotgun uh are you fucking kidding me, motherfucker? Rob anyone but John Jones. Mm-hmm. I, if I was going to make a short list of dudes in New Mexico that you should not rob, John Jones would be near the top of that list. Uh, six foot four, 240 pound human killing machine. John Jones. Check. Uh, insane surveillance system at his home. Check. Oh, uh, attack dog. Attack dog. R- r- yeah. R- check huge arsenal of weapons check john jones is fucking you know what when you say wish a motherfucker would, yes <laughs> just john jones literally wishes a motherfucker would try to rob him are you fucking kidding me rob anyone else and then the i mean the funny part is when the garage door opens and the guy starts running and it's just like oh you're going to outrun john jones huh yeah okay fella and his All his right, attack good luck dog. with that yeah, and his goddamn shotgun. Are you fucking kidding me? You, uh, don't don't try to rob John Jones, people. Rob someone else.
1: John Jones has been wishing a motherfucker would for literally years.
0: His l- his whole life is wishing a motherfucker would try to rob him. <laughs>
1: yes, he's been preparing for this like in all his free time for years now.
0: All right, what's your? Okay. Are you fucking kidding me this week?
1: What's well, that? are you fucking kidding me i'm a little concerned that it's going to fly so under the radar that no one will ever notice and so i decided to use this platform right here during are you fucking kidding me in order to say this to you chad <clears throat> you know what the co-main event is this week's upcoming ufc fight night event it's andre alovsky versus my dude tanner
0: Bowser. yeah your guy tanner boser returns
1: you <laughs>
0: You guys, Canadian, Canadian
1: heavyweight going to come out here with a mullet and a missing tooth that he uses to open up a can of soda pop every once in a while. And he's going to fight Andre Dam Orlovsky in the year 2020. Are you fucking kidding me? Come on. That's some kind of ridiculousness that I can get behind. As my guy, Tanner Boser. you Y'all you, you must have forgot because he he fought like once every three weeks there for a little while in the beginning of pandemic UFC. And then they booked him a fight that where he was actually like, okay, I do need to go home and train for this one. And Now he's coming back. Tanner Bozer about to go out there and remind some people why we were into his whole shtick in the very beginning. Are you fucking kidding me?
0: And that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round Number two.
1: Well, Chad, you want some big news to drop in your post-fight press conference after a regular old UFC fight night event? Dan White's going to go ahead and oblige you and tell you, oh, yeah, by the way, we have decided on Israel Adesanya's next fight after his latest successful middleweight title defense. And that is he is going to go up to light heavyweight and challenge new champion Jan Blachowicz. Now, a lot, of, a lot of ins and outs to this one. A lot of questions it leaves behind. Again, we're doing the champ champ shit. Champion versus champion. Giving Israel Adesanya the chance to win two belts, which then, of course, would force us to ask, what happens to the old belt? Is he going to actually defend two? That seems unreasonable, especially in these two divisions, given the, the kind of schedule that he's kept so far. Uh, and then what do you do with one of the vacant titles? We're all going to say tournament and the UFC is going to just decide to pick two guys and have them fight for a vacant belt. All that kind of usual stuff. The main thing that I found myself wondering as I was sitting here preparing for this UFC fight night week where the headlining bout is Tiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira is – Are some people over there at UFC headquarters having to throw away some promos they had already made for this one?
0: Yeah. Because you know the selling point – the first or second time this fight was actually booked?
1: Yeah. Uh, we're going to do the, the COVID cup here between these two guys who are hopefully finally healthy and COVID free and can each get in there and do it. But you know the selling point for this one was going to be winner probably next to fight for the light heavyweight belt. Winner is probably going to be Jan Blahovich's first title defense. And now, like right before that fight week starts, you basically say, oh, no this fight is eh, not entirely meaningless, but definitely not as meaningful as it would have been right before I made this announcement. And so now everybody's just kind of been like, all right, I guess these two guys are going to fight and it's better to win than to lose. But we already know what's happening next at light heavyweight.
0: Yeah. I mean, th- this Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blahovic fight, I guess is the kind of thing that we are constantly asking the UFC to do. So, uh, I will momentarily revel in its awesomeness. Like I definitely want to see Israel Adesanya fight Yanni Blackjacks. And I think that will be a hell of a fun time. And it would be interesting to see Adesanya move up to 205 and see how he can compete there. I know he opened as the favorite. So uh, it, it will be a fun time will be had. And if he becomes the champ champ, obviously that's just another accolade to add to Adesanya's uh, resume toward p- potential greatness. And all of that is is good and fun and stuff that we should support. And yet, the timing of it, as you mentioned, still leaves me kind of scratching my head and wondering why. And most uh, most seriously wondering, like, is Israel Adesanya just on a master John Jones troll job here? Like, is, he, is the whole point of this thing for Israel Adesanya to win the belt and then stand there in the middle of the cage with his middleweight title and be like, hey, John Jones, I got my title and now I got yours, too. Why don't you come try to get it back? Because I guess that's an awesome move. Yeah. But as you said, many of these dominoes have appeared to already have fallen, man. Like we are in the midst of some other shit. We are on some other shit. And now Israel Adesanya and Yanni Blackjacks is going to come in here. And as far as we know, potentially upset the entire plan for what we thought was happening through the end of the year and on into next year.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. You're right that it does feel like, hey, this is a big thing that's happening. Right. And that's what we want. Right. But it also seems like the UFC is kind of not thinking any further than, all right, let's just see. Can we make just like one big fight? And then afterwards, we'll figure out what happens. And whatever mess we've made, we'll just worry about what to do with that afterwards. But I mean, it does – like, I, I saw Israel Adesanya mention it as a big fuck you to Jon Jones to just, like, kind of wait until he's left the division and then go up and challenge for the belt. And you can see how especially Israel Adesanya's sense of humor would seem to appreciate that kind of troll job a little bit. Like, Jon Jones has been wanting this one so bad and just can't stop talking shit. To and then as soon as he's gone from the division, Israel Adesanya's going to be like, you know what? I think I'll go up there. Seems nice up there.
0: I'm going to go yeah, up there and meanwhile. fight for a title. John Jones is trying to now make heavyweight and he's chasing guys through the Albuquerque night with his shotgun like could he even get back down to 205 at this point in an expeditious and effective manner i don't even know it's uh it's all kind of a mystery like it's as so often happens the the whims of the ufc operate in a, a way that doesn't always make total sense to me although i i'm sure that they'll sell some pay-per-views so that's yeah, i mean is That's the worst like the
1: case scenario here that you can imagine that is that Yanni Blackjacks actually wins that maybe you know the being a little heavier the size I mean Israel Asanya, when they stand there I think like Israel Asania is like 64 and Yanni Blackjacks like 62 so he'll still probably look like the bigger guy but maybe somebody who's closer to his his height and size and has a little bit more of that power maybe the the legendary Polish power yeah. You're going to have to contend with that. Maybe also somebody who can use his size and suffocate you in close a little bit more and is like the worst case scenario that Yanni Blackjacks wins a five round decision, just kind of slowing the pace of the whole fight down and wearing on Israel Adesanya. And then Israel Adesanya, what has to go back down to middleweight as like, you know, slink back down there and be like, hey, guys, I'm still the champ here at like. I don't know. It seems like this is the fight you make if you think that Israel Adesanya is going to win and and get into some champ champ shit and really launch him into that next superstar tier.
0: Well, and that's, I guess my question is if you were Jan Blahovich, would you be happy? Because this is probably going to be a fight that will earn you more money than any of the previous fights that you could have gotten, excluding probably John Jones. He was, he was gone as far as we know, but like if you were getting a, uh, A split of the pay-per-views here as the light heavyweight champion, as we assume that you would, you're going to make a lot more money if you fight Israel Adesanya than if you fight the Tiago Santos Glover Tashira winner. Or would you be upset because it's not as though the UFC is booking this fight hoping you win, right? Like, you got to understand that if you're Jan Blahovich.
1: Yeah, but I think you see this as the best possible outcome for you right now. Because you're right. I mean, imagine... Jan Blachowicz versus Glover Teixeira for the light heavyweight title. That would be, that would be the kind of shit that makes Chad Dundas look at the light heavyweight division and say, shut it down, man. Like that was, that's, that's not going to do a whole lot of pay-per-view buys, but Israel Asanya you're going to get paid off of that one. And you might have a chance to beat the guy just because he's coming up from the, the lower division. Like you might actually be able to use some of that legendary Polish power and, and beat him and stay the champion. It's, it's a great move. If you're Jan Blachowicz, you're probably very excited to see them book that. It's just like if I'm somebody like Robert Whittaker, I'm going, what the hell, man? Like,
0: yeah, if you're, if you're Bobby Knuckles right now, you're probably like, man, I, maybe I shouldn't have been quite so humble. Well, yeah, after we, that fight,
1: you saw like, you know, speaking of Dana White kind of unpromoting people, he showed up at the press conference and said, I thought I was going to have to try to talk Israel Adesanya into rematching Robert Whitaker after Whitaker beat Cannoneer. And instead, Robert Whitaker said, I don't want that fight. And it's like. I don't know if that's quite what he said. I mean, this is a quote from him talking to ESPN, Robert Whitaker saying, it's the fight that makes sense. I know Adesanya doesn't want it, but I do, and I think it will be fun. I think he's a puzzle and that I just want to work at and I want to try and beat. I don't know how I'll do it because he's so good, man. He's so bloody good. And it may be a repeat of what happened last time, but God, I want to try, mate. He's the only guy I want to fight because I lost to him and I don't like losing to people. I don't know how you look at that and you get Robert Whitaker doesn't want that fight. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well... I guess he doesn't have to worry about it now for a while. In any case, uh, that is going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, then perhaps the third time is the charm for the COVID Cup coming up this weekend. Light heavyweight main event from down there at the UFC Apex. Tiago Santos against Glover Tashira. Tried to do this one a couple times before, but uh, dueling positive COVID tests, one for Tashira, one for Santos, and we had to postpone it both times. So here we go uh, one more time here in a fight that, as you mentioned earlier in the show may have been robbed of some of its urgency since what was once a number one contender fight assumed a number one contender fight at 205 pounds now is not as Dana White announced Israel Adesanya will fight Jan Blachowicz for the championship so uh we're gonna get together we as the MMA community and watch hopefully Glover Teixeira fight Tiago Santos this weekend and uh I don't know what else to say about it. And I don't know what else <laughs> we should hope for to see here out of this fight, which will probably be a hard hitting fun affair in its own right. Yeah. Just if we were going to have it in a, in a vacuum, which we are at this point,
1: I'm going to be really interested to see what the commentators do with this one now, because you know what they would have said beforehand. It would have been like, this is a fight to determine a top contender. This is a fight to see who's likely next for the champion. Jan Blachowicz. And a champion who you you at least think that a lot of light heavyweights are seeing him as a little bit vulnerable, like at least way more vulnerable than John Jones was. Yes. And so I'm sure a lot of people were thinking it's a matter of who can get there first and and, and fight this guy, especially if you're somebody like Tiago Santos. And then you get the news like, okay, you're you're fighting on what now seems like a light heavyweight eliminator, but you won't be next. At best, maybe you'll be on the backup list. You you might get the first call if something happens to one of the guys, either it's Adesanya or Jan Blahovic, for before their title fight. Maybe that's what you're fighting. Maybe what you're fighting here is not to get knocked back in line. And yet, that does take a whole lot away from the stakes. And on a fight card that really doesn't have a ton going for it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did they announce a date of when Blahovic and and Adesanya are supposed to do it, or is I don't it still think so. just? Uh, theoreticals. So yeah, you, you are maybe fighting to be an, inj- an injury replacement here, uh, or I guess to be the number one contender for the guy who wins the Israel Adesanya Jan Blahovich fight. But since that is yet to be scheduled, could be a while before we even figure out who that champion is, and there would be no guarantee. In fact, it seems like, if anything, perhaps doubtful that either Tiago Santos or Glover Tashiro would just be able to rest on their laurels until. Uh, the time comes when they could face the champion, and and like we said, if Israel Adesanya were to to dash in there and snatch the two hundred five pound championship, there's no there's no chance that he doesn't finally c- or f- call out John Jones. There's just no chance. I think that's what he will do. That's one hundred percent what he will do. And uh, depending on what stage we are at with getting John Jones up to heavyweight, like John Jones might turn around to come back down and fight Israel Adesanya, man. At which case. If you are the winner of Tashira versus Santos, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I mean, pack a lunch, I guess, cause you're going to be waiting a while.
1: Don't you think that, especially if we're talking about a Stipe Miusic Francis Ngannou fight, like in March or whatever, that if here in the next few months, sometimes Israel Adesanya he goes up there, beats Jan Blahovich, says like John Jones, I got your belt. You're going to come get it. I mean, John Jones, I think, goes sprinting back to light heavyweight like he heard someone trying to break into his car.
0: Garage door. Yep. The garage door opens and we
1: just see the ring cam of John Jones going sprinting out looking for his Radasagna in the Albuquerque night. Because he he couldn't resist that. And it would be a big money fight. And you're just going to be sitting around waiting so long. Because the way things have been going at heavyweight, it's probably like – If you're just playing the odds, you go, Stipe probably beats Francis Ngannou by doing the exact same thing that he did before over the course of five rounds. And then says, I need six more months off before I can turn around and be ready to face John Jones. And so you're sitting around going like, all right, I can go all this time without a paycheck. Or I can put down the pork rinds and stop deadlifting for a couple weeks and maybe get back down there to 205 and fight Israel Adesanya and make a whole bunch of money. Not a great deal for the winner of Glover versus Tiago, but... Probably also a much more likely scenario and the one that has, you know, Dana White's eyes flip into dollar signs like a goddamn Looney Tunes cartoon. So you can see how that would go, you know?
0: Yeah. In terms of the actual fight here, uh, what are you going to be looking at most acutely? I guess for me, I want to see Tiago Santos get out there and uh, see how he looks after knee surgeries and and a protracted time off. We hope he's at 100 percent. We assume he's at 100 uh, percent, and especially now coming off of disease as well. So uh, there's going to be a lot of question marks surrounding Tiago Santos, but it will be interesting to see, you know if he can go out there, uh, not, not just with like the, the previous athleticism, but just like that goddamn ferocity that had him on that four-fight win streak before he rolled into his own razor-thin loss to John Jones back at UFC 239 in July of last year.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what you're really looking for is how's his mobility look and he still move around the same way. Does he look like he's lost anything there? How's his timing and everything, you know, after just being off for a while, does he look rusty at all? And does he go in there and still fight with that same balls out aggression that he has? You know, like that's, that's kind of what you're looking for there. And, 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 You got to be careful against a guy like Glover Teixeira, who he can box and he can hit. He can take a punch. He's a tough guy, but like he's a beatable opponent for Thiago Santos. If Thiago Santos is all there, if he's all the way back and he's 100%, he should beat Clover Teixeira.
0: Yeah. Glover DeShira rolls in on a four-fight win streak most recently, as we all remember, against Anthony Smith. Man, one of the things that strikes me here is that Glover DeShira is 41, Tiago Santos is 36 and coming off double knee surgeries and a terrible disease. Uh, Both these guys got to be looking at their watches, right? And just being like, really? You guys are going to throw a curveball now into the light heavyweight title picture? Like, now? Really? Because we, we neither of us are spring chickens over here. Like, we, neither of us have an unlimited amount of time to wait to make this happen. And all of a sudden, Israel Adesanya is coming over, uh, seemingly just to just flip the bird to uh, John Jones.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, you know, Glover seems like
1: a laid back kind of guy. I'm sure he's not too bothered by it. Uh, if I were Tiago, I would be a little bit more miffed because you would have seen your path to the title get somehow like suddenly a lot easier when Jan Blachowicz became champion, you're like, okay, I know I can beat that guy and I I can probably beat the guy that you've put in between me and that guy. And then right before you get a chance to, you find out, I'm sorry, they're doing what now? They said they're the plan is to do what? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Because that seems to plunge you into kind of weird purgatory. Yeah.
0: And uh, there, there will be watching it all go down on Saturday night. Um, let's go ahead and do just saying stuff here, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Do we have a, do we have a joint just saying stuff? I
1: believe we do. I believe we do.
0: It's that time again. It's like we do almost every time this year, Ben, November 1st, as we record the proper this week, the day after Halloween, it's time for us to take our annual stroll through the world of mixed martial arts. Halloween costumes. Okay. You know, okay. One thing that I noticed just scrolling through MMA Junkie has a pretty good rundown in the blue corner this week of all of the uh all of the Halloween costumes from from notable MMA fighters this year. Uh a lot fewer just sexy costumes this year. You know, normally everyone's out there with their shirt off, mm-hmm. everybody has a skimpy sexy nurse who's been killed, sexy Architect who's been killed, sexy librarian who has a terrible skin-wasting disease. Like you know, you know what the MMA costumes look like. I've seen it. A lot of a lot of kind of conservative looks this year, from what I'm seeing. You got Conor McGregor up here as a, in his own words, a hybrid Joker Batman type thing. Okay, so that was one that he clearly just had in the closet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chuck Liddell's got the uh, Mohawk dyed blue, but otherwise doesn't appear to be doing much of a costume. Oh, check! You got Clay Guida dressed, of course, as the dude from the Big Lebowski. Uh, Also looks like maybe he's out at a bar, which is is good for him. (laughs) Uh, Dustin Poirier has the dad. You know, this is just a dad costume right here. You're going to take 15 minutes to uh, do the eye black and Frankenstein stitches on either side of your your face just so you can take the kids trick-or-treating. One person who is at least making an effort here to keep it sexy with the costume. Ben, you're not going to be surprised about this, but Beck Rawlings as, uh, Mm -hmm. as the, uh, the character from Pulp Fiction here with the, with the open white shirt. And the syringe
1: plunged into her heart, the syringe of adrenaline.
0: Yeah. Uh, Nina Ansaroff, and Amanda Nunes as par- as Pirates. I'm going to tell you my personal favorite, though, folks. I got to give the belt this year, no pun intended, to Kendall Grove, who's out here dressed as the Ultimate Warrior with some pretty good-looking face paint and uh, and a wig. He's got his oldest child dressed as Hulk Hogan. He's got his middle child dressed as Andre the Giant, which obviously is my personal favorite, and then the, uh, the baby, I believe, dressed here as the Macho Man, Randy Savage. So you go full family-themed... Uh, Halloween costume for me. And that's you're getting my vote every time. That's I'm just saying I like what Kendall Grove is doing here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I especially like how the the baby has no idea what's going on. That's one of the nice things about having a baby around Halloween is like they're only going to even be aware that they participated in the holiday when you show them pictures later and you don't have to get their consent to like they don't have to agree to the family costume. You can just put them in an outfit and there they are. The, the child, the like toddler aged kind of child as Andre, the giant there, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what was said to the child, how it was explained, what we were all engaged in here, you know?
0: Well, I mean, you probably just show him a tape of WrestleMania three and you're like, you're the big guy. You're the big fella.
1: Yeah. Even though you are the second smallest member of this family
0: one person who is not going to miss the opportunity to stroll around without the shirt on you got to scroll almost all the way down to the bottom of this MMA junkie story but i don't even know what he's supposed to be a bounty hunter of sorts perhaps but luke rockhold you know what he's doing he's uh he's got the shirt off 100% prerequisite for halloween costume for luke rockhold to get the shirt off there but uh he's doing he's doing he's giving the people what they want i guess you could say
1: I uh, I kind of like what uh, your guy Louis Pena, Violent Bob Ross, is doing with what he claims is an uh, Alexander the Great
0: costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's I like it offbeat. It's uh, it's working for me. Yeah. It also seems like maybe he just has a toga for uh, for all seasons.
1: And why wouldn't like he, you?
0: I mean, it's it's going to be versatile. It You're is gonna wear it to several different functions. In any case, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for tuning in to listen. Of course, uh, we got fun stuff happening on the Patreon page all week. We got the live chat coming up on Wednesday. Leprechaun in the hood drops probably Thursday. God damn it. And then <laughs> uh, Friday, we'll be back for the power hour to look ahead to uh, Tiago Santos versus Glover to Shira. And then back again a week from today, of course, to do it all over again. Thanks for joining us for the proper. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
1: Uh, you didn't mention, I don't think, Gunnar Nelson here, who mentions it's his daughter's one-year birthday today. She didn't care much for my Halloween costume. And what he seemed to have gone as is a terrifying clown.
0: Oh. oh,
1: yeah. He's, uh... And the child is just crying in the picture, which, like, yeah. yeah I can see how Demonic Clown maybe isn't the kid's favorite.
0: You know yeah I gotta give also a shout out to Ed Ruth for a legitimately scary costume It looks like he has some kind of like a light up devil mask that he's wearing that is uh you know I don't freak out that's a scary costume right